welcome to the Rocky Talk podcast. This is Varun Swaminathan with Dartmouth College interviewing Mr. Fahim Abed, independent journalist and Neiman Fellow at Harvard University. Mr. Abed was a reporter with the New York Times until being evacuated in 2021 during the Taliban takeover of the country. Uh, and Mr. Abed, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, I really enjoyed your talk yesterday, and I'm excited to ask a couple more questions learn about your experiences and predictions for the future. So last summer, you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times uh, about the emotional toll of being separated from your country, and you discussed the unfamiliar and individualistic nature of the United States. So it's now nine months later. Are things the same? Have they changed? Has it gotten any easier to be separated? As um, Has it gotten easier to adjust? Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, yeah, um, now it, 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 it takes a lot of time to adjust to, to this culture and uh, to this country. And like um, I, 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 I was taking a class last semester and I asked the professor who was teaching migration, human rights and refugees that like when, when a refugee will feel home in, in, in his new country. And she said like once a refugee is always a refugee. So uh, it is, it, it, it never gonna be the same again. But uh, now I, I'm, I'm trying to accept uh, the individual life here and, and the way it is here, like, like that's how it is, that's a reality. And the one who needs to adjust and change me. So I, I, I try to like program my days and weeks and, and find uh, things to do and, and like get appointments with people and to meet them. It's not the same way in my country. Like uh, you would just call your friend and say like, can we meet in an hour? And they would say, yeah, but here you need to like book an appointment a week ahead and in i the, the way i understand that i'm adjusting to it is because like if someone show up on my apartment and i'm kind of surprised that i was not expecting him to come so that's how i i, I think i can I, I i made some progress and now i i'm adjusting to this new environment got it thank you um so what has surprised you the most about the year and the half that you've spent here now? Uh, so the first thing that, that uh, surprised me the most was uh, how, how life is uh, focused on, on uh, individualism in this country and how like, people just think about their own life, about their own things to do and about their on achievements and like when you see news from outside like it's an outsider because this is like the biggest economy and uh, the strongest country in the world i thought that uh, like people in the u.s would be interesting like in things happening all over the world because uh, they can relate to it and their country is somehow involved in, in, in all of uh, things happening but then I realized that that was not the case and uh, people here are just focused on their own life and, and on their own job. And then like those who are very social, they want to know what's happening in their small town. That's it. Yeah. So now talking about Afghanistan, 
So as a journalist who has explored different regions of the world and walks of life, what is your eventual hope for how uh, Afghanistan can end up? And um, how does that vision look and how long do you think it will take to achieve? Well, uh, unfortunately, like for now, there is there is no hope for Afghanistan because the, the regime that is in charge of the country, it doesn't live in any modern values. It doesn't live in democracy, in the, it doesn't live in human rights, it doesn't live in women rights. And it's, it's like talking to a group of people who are living like maybe in, in 1400s. And, and it's very difficult to make them understand that this is the need of this time. Like uh, the Taliban foreign minister was interviewed by, by a journalist and they asked them that when you will have elections? And, and he said like, well, there are countries in the world that have elections and there are countries that they don't have elections. So we are one of those countries which won't have elections. And Afghanistan is a very diverse country. Like it has more ethnicities and, and people in Taliban are like, mostly from a single ethnicity and uh, a single group with, with, with their own ideology and, and they're not open to any changes. So I think it will take a very long time, but uh, people who are living in Afghanistan will eventually find ways to, to, to fight the Taliban, to stand against them, because it's, it's uh, taking a very big toll on, on ordinary people who are living there, like they don't have jobs, they don't have security, they don't have any freedom, like even uh, Taliban stop people on their, on their checkpoints and they check their phones. So like, yeah, there is no privacy, no security, nothing. So eventually, because that, that's how it works generally in, in, in countries uh, that are living under dictatorship. So I, I hope that that would be the case. And as a journalist in exile, I will try my best to cover situation in Afghanistan and show it to the world and, and hope that someday the, the, the big economies and the strong countries will pay some attention to the situation. So when you talk about the larger countries paying attention, would that involve some sort of foreign intervention again? Or do you think that Afghanis are too wary of how that ends up? Uh, where does that kind of change come from? Does it come from the people in Afghanistan? Would a foreign country need to come help to fight against the Taliban? How do you see that playing out? No, no invasion will not work. It, it never worked in Afghanistan. Like from Anglo Wars to the US invasion, it was always very problematic for, for the countries that invaded Afghanistan. So the only way is to, to have like diplomatic pressure, to have sanctions, and, and that that will eventually help because Afghanistan was most most of the time relied on international aids and once the Taliban realized that there is no money and, and they're suffering then they will show some flexibility but now like they they receive some sort of aid and, and they think okay that's enough because even if it's not enough for people of Afghanistan the share they get from the aids that like they show their people as vulnerable people and get them some aid that that's also like a big thing for them and and then they have the revenue from the government so like if there are more sanctions and they, their revenue is decreased 
it will create more hardship for people in Afghanistan, but it will also, uh, I think, uh, put pressure on the Taliban to show some flexibility. Okay. Um, and then, once again, coming back to the United States, uh, what have you found about the kind of Afghani-American community? Have you interacted with it? How have Are there other refugees who you've come together with to share experiences and kind of find solace with? Uh, yeah, when, when we arrived to the U.S., um, after the collapse of the government in 2021, we were a bunch of former colleagues and we were living in the same complex. So we had a community there uh, which which didn't last longer and I had to leave to Pennsylvania. Uh, but after that, uh, I, I, I didn't have much engagement with the Afghan community. And one of the reasons was that uh, uh, that, that there are weird literatures between uh, the Afghan community, like uh, the old Afghans and the new Afghans, and then like um, in, in some cases uh, they stare down to, to people who recently came to the U.S. and it was not very helpful, and I didn't find any peace uh, in engaging with. with with specific uh, Afghan communities uh, in in some states, so uh, I, I I I don't have much much engagement now with the Afghan community in Cambridge, but but there is a small community, and uh, I I hope that uh, after moving to DMB area, there is a bigger community, and I think there will be better understanding of people who who recently moved to the U.S. and there would be some kind of collaboration. So then I would imagine that you and your family would have a lot more in common with other Afghan refugees who ended up in other countries. Um, or do you still stay in touch with others who got out of Afghanistan who are now living in uh, countries all over the world? Yeah, like our friends and, and some of our family members also end up in, in other countries. And, and exactly, we have a lot to share because the, the experience has like a very similar pattern and Everyone is going through the same way and same struggle, and and then like with with some people who who spend more time uh, in 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 these countries, they also can uh, can be helpful because they can give you an idea that when the struggle will start uh, to be easier, or like when you will adapt to the struggle, and then like when you will feel sort of settled. So that that's also helpful, but but like with the uh, Afghan community that was formed after the collapse of the government, yeah, we have a lot to, to talk and share. But there's also a kind of uh, sense of blame in 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 this uh, in in inside and outside Afghanistan, and everyone is trying to blame someone for that situation. So that's quite complicated. And that's one of the reasons that people doesn't talk much to each other. But we have only engagements with, with very close friends, like and, and not with anyone else. And and like once in a while when when I check on some of my friends, I realize that they're sad with me and the reason is not quite clear. And I also sometimes feel the same way about some of my other friends. And then uh, I, I, I could uh, understand recently that this was the feeling that 
we all are trying to blame someone for what happened two years ago in Afghanistan, and that's why we feel this way. Understood. Um, do you have any stories of friends or people from back home who are now integrating into new countries and how that process compares to how it's been for you here? Yeah, uh, well, one of my friends uh, was also a journalist. He, uh, after the collapse of the government, his, his wife was pregnant and they were evacuated to France because he worked for some time with French media. French media. And uh, after he arrived in Paris, uh, one of uh, French journalists helped him with an apartment and said, like, you can stay for two years in my apartment. And then he was able to start working back uh, with the French media outlet that he was part of in Afghanistan. And it, 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 it was uh, like the struggle was still there, but there was enough support system. I think it, it's part of the European culture. And also uh, like the support provided by government was also, also enough for those who, who are struggling to find job or work. But it, it, it's, it's a completely different world in, in the U.S. that like uh, you don't want to rely on the government support because it's not enough in most cases. And also it is, it's considered something bad to, 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 to apply for support. That, that was my initial feeling when I moved. Um, to U.S. And, and because for the first uh, four months uh, I, I didn't have a work authorization, so I was supported by the government, but, but it didn't feel good. So I, that that's was my, um, my my feeling that I I should never apply for the government support again. And, and like the first job I got after having work authorization, I just did and, and then I started working. So, so there are different cultures and different ways that uh, refugees are experiencing. But uh, in the U.S., it, there are more opportunities, but there are also more challenges. And but in some other countries, there are uh, there is a stronger support system, but there are limited opportunities. I got it. That is, yeah, that is a really interesting way to put the cultural differences. So speaking on relationships with a government, in those months leading up to the Taliban takeover, what were your interactions as a journalist with the Afghan government? Like, were you communicating with them? Were they kind of giving you a sense of what was going to happen? Because in your talk, you described how everyone knew this was coming. You just didn't know when. So were you talk having that dialogue with uh, government? Yeah, so we were. I was talking with the all different layer of officials in the government from the spokespeople to like uh, ministers and, and deputy ministers the problem was that the, the government uh, officials were not honest about what was happening they didn't have uh, enough information about the situation in front lines they didn't provide uh, enough support for soldiers and the president himself was not in the picture. He didn't know what was happening. Like in, in, in one of his interviews after the collapse, he said that his initial plan was to 
leave the capital and go to another province called Khost and, and start a resistance against the Taliban from there. But then when he decided that the province, and, and he learned that the, pro, the province he was planning to travel already collapsed. So the president was also not aware of what was happening and, and he was misleaded by people around him and they didn't share all time information with him. But uh, the, the president had this crazy confidence that he would say, no, like the capital would not collapse and like, we are strong, we would do this, we would do that. And that misleaded people so much. And, and the officials were also like pretty much confident that uh, the Taliban will not enter to the capital. And, like, everything will be fine, we have enough forces in capital to defend the capital from the Taliban. And, and there was like a big number of special forces and commandos, but they were uh, poorly managed and uh, that, that that's why they, they fell apart so, so. Yeah. Okay, um, and then finally, so now you've spent a lot of time at Harvard, now we're here at Dartmouth. Uh, what do you think students at these Ivy League universities who in the future will likely be in positions where they can affect positive change, what do you hope they take away from your experience and how do you think they can help make a difference? Uh, well, I think uh, the, the one, one thing I would suggest is that uh, like, it's not in favor of anyone to start a in a country, no matter like how strong you are, war is not a solution. And and if, if the, the next generations and, and the students who are who are stu uh, studying now in these universities, if if they always consider this fact that war is not a solution, it is it it will just make things worse. Like Afghanistan is in a worse position than it was before the invasion. And, and if there wouldn't be an invasion, Afghans would be able to find a solution for the situation in their country in the past two decades. But because of the invasion, they were distracted and now they have to, and, and they had a, a engineering experience. They thought, okay, it's here, Americans are here, they will fix everything for us, but that's not the reality. No one else will fix anything for you. It's like when it's your country, it's your response. So I think uh, that, that that's very important to consider. And, and yeah, like uh, if, if we can uh, have generations that will not believe in, in wars and violence and instead they can talk, that that's the, the, the only problem of uh, these generations that people are just so much distracted with social media and phones that People are not talking to each other, or they're only talking with themselves, which is not making any sense. Okay, I got it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, it was a real honor for me to get to speak with you. Um, yeah, thank you. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.